if you've never realized that you were lost, then you'd never even know if you were found. And the light means nothing without the darkness. And the darkness means nothing without the light. (laughs) Don't let me go on and on, because I will. Let's get to the show, because we talk about that in this particular episode of the podcast, among other things. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. If I could see into your heart, then would I know just today on the program, Josh Caterer. Let me tell you a little bit about Josh Caterer. One summer in the early 90s, I drove around with only one cassette in my car, and that was Born to Quit by the Smokin' Popes. Led by the Illinois-born Josh Caterer and his brothers Eli and Matt, the band were nothing short of a revelation. Josh's lilting vocals had all the elegance of Sinatra and the finesse of Morrissey, but it also had muscle. The songs? Good God. I mean, the album only clocks in at 28 minutes, I think, but the songs were so timeless and so unique. You could cycle through it 50 times, and repeat listens never chipped away at the brilliance of the tracks. It only reinforced that you were listening to a stone-cold classic. The Smokin' Popes tore it up. They toured with Green Day, Jawbreaker, and Morrissey, had a bit of a hit with Need You Around, had their songs appear in movies like Clueless and Tommy Boy, and found Morrissey himself declaring he absolutely loved the band. Over the course of their career, the Popes have put out seven albums, played massive gigs like Riot Fest in 2016, and though they've broken up, gone on hiatus, and reformed, by the way, what band hasn't done that? They remain one of the most enduring outfits out there. As for Josh, well, you'll hear a lot about him in this interview, but Josh has founded other bands like Duval and the Jackson Mud Band over the years, and his new album, The Hideout Sessions, is a live gig that was recorded in Chicago in October of 2020. Raw, powerful, intimate, and rousing, The Hideout Sessions finds Caterer pushing his voice in ways he never has before. He's always been a great singer, but the evolution of his voice is on full display here. There's a new layer of intensity and fragility that makes this live show incredibly moving. 
We hit it all in this interview, having COVID, the 90s, regret, and yes, being able to appreciate being lost once you realize you've been found. Here's my chat with Josh Caterer right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. thought uh like what why why isn't there some kind of coordinated uh movement to to do to do something about the um pathetically low royalty rates on streaming like how is it that spotify and these other companies are able to pay like fractions of a penny per stream and keep most of that money for themselves and it and and it seems like the answer is, well, in order for us to do something about that, like musicians would have to be, um, they would have to be willing to, to, to take action, which was uh, in, the, in the moment, it seemed like it was gonna cost them something. They would have to take their music down off of those streaming services. But I think most bands and artists are afraid to do that because they think that um, my music, I sort of have to be giving it away for nothing now in order to get the exposure because they don't, because they don't see the inherent value of their art. You know, there is a, a, there is a kind of ingrained undervaluing that tells you like, no, you have to take this because you, you don't have the, you not only you, you don't have the power to do anything about it like you don't have the value to do anything about it you're not worth that much you just have to take what you're given so yeah this is an issue and that that sort of undervaluing of oneself that feels almost institutional that that sort of been built into the system over over many years yes yes and now you have I don't want to get it wrong. It was the, the CEO of one of the major streaming uh, companies. Was it Spotify or was it, it might've been, who said, hey, musicians, you just have to, um, you just have to accept the fact that like putting out an album every two years, like isn't enough anymore. Mm. Did you, did you see that? Do you remember him saying that? Was, I do. I'm trying to remember who that was. I know exactly what you're talking about. Right. Like you, you have time. It was like, if what he was trying to say is like, um, that the problem isn't that we're not paying you enough of a royalty rate. The problem is you need to create, you know, two or three times more content than you used to. You need to come out with at least one album per year to stay competitive. You know, the onus is on you, right. artists. Like, you know, it's like that Bible story where like, okay, we're gonna, um, you have to, you have to make the same number of bricks, but we're not going to give you straw anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, though. And, the, but the funny thing is, is that the, 
doing an album a year wouldn't really solve anything. No, because I know how could you even do an album a year? Um, because musicians now, like you, you, you basically you can't make a living off of it, so you have to have a day job. So you have you don't have the time or the bandwidth to to spend all of your life doing nothing but writing and recording albums. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. And then recording them for you, you wouldn't have the money to go into a studio to record. So you would have to do nothing but stay home, write and record music and put it up on Spotify and release like two or three albums a year in order to make what you used to make just off of albums. You wouldn't have the time to tour, even though now touring would be the only way you could make money, except for now you can't tour. So the right. entire music industry has imploded. And isn't it true that even if you were touring, you're still not making what you would have been making in 1993? Oh, the th it's, it's completely backwards from what it was in the 90s. And I'm not saying that the 90s um, were some perfect golden era where everything was as it should be. <laughs> but right. I'm, I am saying that in the 90s, um, the, the product, for, for lack of a better word, the thing that you were trying to sell, the units that you were trying to move were the, was the recorded music. You were trying to sell CDs. Um, and touring was seen as something that you did to promote the product. You were, you were driving people to the record stores to try to get them to, uh, to, to move units that way. Not that, I, I mean, I hate speaking about art in those terms, but- I know, I know. But, now it's flipped around. You you uh, you make music and put it out there, and basically give it away to try to persuade people to to pay to see you in concert. Um, so it's a little disorienting for for musicians who remember it the other way around, because I think the thing that's hard to accept is that we're we're coming from like I grew up with a kind of real reverence for recorded music. Like, mm -hmm. like uh, listening to albums, like the album was the thing and the song was the, was the thing. It was like, these were the, these were the golden eggs, you know? Because, and I still feel that way because I look back on my musical output over the years and, you know, I look back on the 90s and the thing that's left is the albums. I mean, I played a ton of shows but um, those are all gone. You know, the thing that still remains uh, is the albums that we made. And so those, I think those need to be kind of cherished and, and as we said before, valued in ways that they aren't anymore. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, if a, if a teenager came up to you and said, I am in a band and we're gonna tour and we're really excited, I mean, you'd have to give them the straight dope, I guess, right? Or if they said any advice, I mean, I wouldn't even know what to say to a kid now who's starting a band. I'd have to, I wouldn't want to lie to them. You know, I, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, it's like at this particular moment in time, you can't start a band. Like, what you, first of all, you can't get together to practice with people because, uh, you know, social distancing, like it's, there's a, <laughs> that's tricky. I mean, you can do it. I mean, I, figure out ways to like do practicing where you don't come within six feet of each other. But beyond that, you can't, you can't invite anybody to watch that. You can't go into a club and play a show. 
And if you put out a record, you're not going to make any money off of it. <laughs> so it's like, right. so right. arts are really, and I know like people in various industries all over our economy are, everybody's feeling the effects of, of COVID. But, uh, but I have to point out that, that the arts are hit very, very hard. Anybody who's in kind of a, a gig, uh, what, do you, what would you call that? It's a gig work, you know, like event related work. Um, and plus the arts aren't, uh, aren't anywhere near the top of the list of being considered essential. So those are the last things that are going to open up again. Um, and in ways that's, that's right. I mean, the, the, uh, the teachers, the hospital workers, the, you know, these, these people, even people who are working in grocery or the grocery industry, I mean, there, there are reasons why those people are front, front of the line, but that just means that the reality is that if you, before 2020, if you were making your living off of uh, music in any way, you're sunk. You are completely annihilated by this. And you're the last one on the list to, to actually recover from that. And then there's the, the question of when will you even feel comfortable yourself? You know, like if they say, okay, you can tour now. I mean, would you feel comfortable getting in a van and driving across country and playing small clubs um, with, you know, with there's a vaccine, but there's no cure. So you're taking a risk every time you, yeah. you go out. And so that's scary oh, too. I, I mean, I heard, uh, and I, I don't have all the details about this, but what, wasn't Dave Chappelle out doing comedy shows? And he was being pretty uh, proactive about testing. He was like doing rapid tests for people as they yeah. came into the show. And like, it seemed like, wow, that's, that's pretty serious. Like if you're gonna do it, that's how you do it. Uh, and he wound up getting COVID. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's just not safe. And there's nothing that you can do to make it safe. No. I. I wish that COVID was a visible red mass that you could see coming towards you. <laughs> but because it's vaporous, it's mysterious, and it's that you hear people saying, I didn't leave my house for six months and I got it. And so that sort of vaporous quality is very, um, it's mysterious and terrifying. It is. It is. I had it. Oh, you did have it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was absolutely miserable. I mean, I know that there are a lot of people who um, have it and you're asymptomatic or it's like sort of like a cold for a few days and then you're good. And then there's, if that's one end of the spectrum and then there's other people who are on a ventilator and they die, like that's the other end of the spectrum. I was probably like somewhere in the middle leaning slightly towards the, towards the severe because there were moments in the second week where I, I really thought I was going to have to go in to the hospital because my fever, I, I could not bring the fever down. It was up in the 103.5 area. Wow. Um, which is, I don't remember ever having a fever that high. I mean, if you get up to 101, 102, you're like, boy, I'm sick. But 103.5 is like, you, you, you get worried, you yeah. know? So I like, I have a, uh, I have a friend, 
Dr. Darrell, who sings for the band uh, The Bull Weevils. You know The Bull Weevils? I know The Bull Weevils, yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, their, their singer, Darrell Wilson, is an ER doctor. Oh, and I didn't so, know that. Yeah, 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 he is. And uh, so I'm texting him in the, in the midst of my second week of COVID when I have this 103 fever that I can't, I'm taking Tylenol, trying to get it to go down. It won't go down. And uh, I'm texting him. I'm like, do I need to go into the hospital? And he, you know, he was kind of talking me through it and giving me, uh, you know, giving me some direction there and telling me different, uh, different approaches to over-the-counter things that I could take that might help that different than the stuff I was taking. And um, it was helpful. And I, I got through it, but like, all the all the stuff that that they say like um you know you, you have the fever you have body aches uh headaches chills nausea exhaustion i'm like sleeping uh like just just sleeping and sleeping i would sleep for hours i would wake up and my um i had gone to sleep with uh with two hoodies on and a stocking cap and uh and you know heavy blankets on me because i was just shivering and i wake up and i'm soaking wet all my clothes are soaking wet with sweat and so i have to i get up just long enough to take everything off put on new clothes change my pillowcase because that was soaking wet too and then i'm exhausted i get back in bed i go back to sleep like <laughs> it was like that for like several days and uh so it was it was not fun. It was not fun. And I definitely saw that um you know, if I had had any kind of pre-existing condition like asthma or diabetes or anything like that, like I I might not have made it. Hmm. Um of course I'm a little older. I'm 48, so um you know, I'm like approaching I'm I'm you know, I'm approaching that area of life where I, the older you get, the more concerned you have to be. And I don't have the resilience of like a 25 year old to shake it off. But, but all of that to say um, that I, I understand um, all of the, all of the hesitance, hesitancy that people have and the fear and the, the, wanting to be careful and close things down and and not rush to as badly as i want to play shows again i mean i with every fiber of my being i i want to play shows again but um having been through that experience i'm like we absolutely should not open clubs up again until we know that it's safe because if one person comes to the show and has to go what through what i went through or even worse um it would be on my conscience forever and we should all look at it that way you know yeah yeah and that's a really harrowing description and um wh what was happening in your head like do you even remember what your sort of the streams of thoughts that were weaving in and out were they all sort of like fevered uh you know narratives or do you even remember what you were thinking um i i remember i was i was just a, for a while there i was just afraid like Oh no, this is this is not going well. I'm gonna wind up on a ventilator. Um and just just that kind of fear. Uh but that's when I, you know, that's when I started 
texting Dr. Daryl and he, uh, he kind of talked me off the ledge with that because he said, um, the fever is hard to control. Um, there are things that I, I can help you with some of that if you try some different things. But he's like, the thing that you would really be worried about is if you can't breathe. So, mm -hmm. so how, do you, how do you feel? How do your lungs feel? And I said, well, um, I can breathe. Like if I, if I take a deep breath, I cough, but I don't feel congested. And as long as I'm breathing shallow to, to medium shallow, uh, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not like, well, the way that he put it is, uh, are you experiencing air hunger? Uh, which is a frightening term even to think about, like imagine being hungry for air, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, no, I don't, I'm not having any air hunger. So he's like, okay, well, you're good then. I mean, you're not good, but you don't have to go into the hospital. Air hunger would be the only reason you go into the hospital because then they'll put you on a ventilator. Air hunger. My God, that is a terrifying term. It's a good name for an album, I think, by the way. <laughs> air hunger. Yeah. Maybe a metal album. Yeah, except for I wouldn't want to, for the rest of my life, be reminded of what it felt like to have COVID. So I'm going yeah. to shout this on that as an album title. Yeah, yeah. Someone else can take it. Um, yeah, and that's, and imagine, again, being, uh, you know, being 25 and being on tour and being that sick and not yeah. having health insurance and not, because you're, you're too young to, uh, you know, you're, you're writing the band dream. That's a whole other layer of concern, I would imagine, for a young yeah. artist. Yeah. You know? So I, I think it's going to take a long time for the music, I, I don't know, industry is a, is a term that I, I, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about describing it as the music industry, but the music community, uh, the, the music world, the, the people who make music, it's gonna, I feel like it's, even if, even if the vaccines have all rolled out and we're achieving herd immunity by, you know, late summer, that does not mean that we will automatically start having shows again. I, I, I feel like so much of the infrastructure of the way music works has been demolished mm -hmm. that it's going to take additional months to like begin to repair that. Don't you think? I do. I really do. And I also think the trust issue and, um, you know, just generally feeling secure. I mean, it'd be weird yeah. to be playing a show as an artist and at the same time being terrified that that show could make you sick. I mean, that's a whole, that's just a crazy thing to think about. Um, yeah, make you sick or lead to some sort of an outbreak where somebody there had it and right. 15 people at your show got it and some of them died and then you feel responsible for that and nobody wants to deal with that. So maybe this is, this is, this is an awful situation that we're in. I know, and I, I know it's not a very uplifting chat, but I do think it's important to talk about uh, because it's sort of like, you know, I, I think you and I grew up, uh, you know, crate diving and, and loving music so much and, um, you know, supporting artists and thinking, thinking that they, I mean, they were like, they were, you know, obviously I grew up here in the Bay Area as a punk rock kid and my heroes were, were punk rock guys. And I, when I was, 13 14 years old i thought anyone who made an album was rich <laughs> i just <laughs> automatically you were you were wealthy if you had a and as i got as i got older i realized that wasn't true and that really is not true now 
and um, it's scary. Yep, it is scary. Man, that is funny that you brought up that that perception because uh, I remember being a kid and like uh, you know starting out listening to albums and you just you just look at uh, you're just holding these album covers you know and looking at these artists and they're it just seemed like they existed um, on some different plane you know they they, they exist in it in an alternate universe of of glory and and uh, and fame and uh like the way that you would you look at somebody who you know makes movies mm -hmm. maybe that's the maybe that's the correlation and i think it's i don't know it's uh even there i i know that like some of the people who are in films are very very rich <laughs> the people who are starring in those movies might be very, very rich, but uh, the supporting players, the character actors, uh, the people that are in independent films, like these are just working people. Like the, the, the artists, no matter what the art is, the artists that are actually wealthy from it are like a small fraction of the people that are doing it. Most of the people that are doing it are, are just like, kind of struggling they don't have insurance and they're they're doing it because they love it and they sort of have to do it because they were born to and they it's yeah. like a kind of calling for them to do it you were wired for that and nothing else and uh that's where most of us are are stuck you know, yeah. and there are times when you wish, like, I wish I was good at something else or could, could handle doing something else, you know, but here we are, if, you know. Well, it's almost like you, as an artist, it's just, it's just literally the most organic thing. It's just what you do. Like whenever you have a feeling, you go to the guitar or whenever, right, the way you express yourself is through those mediums artistically. And so that's that's almost hardwired in the way you might like peanut butter like you can't deprogram that yeah it, it's kind of an identity thing it's, yeah. it's like making music it's like it's what you are i am a musician you know yeah and like get another job but whatever other job that is is not going to be what i am it's going to be what i'm temporarily doing to make ends meet while i'm trying to support what i actually am which is right. the person who, who has to make music. I remember hearing Jay Leno was talking in an interview years ago where he was saying like never, his policy as a young comic was to never have a plan B. He was like, I'm not gonna sell real estate because if I sell real estate and then do comedy at night, it will take away from, it'll dilute. Now that's a, you know, that not everyone can afford, and, and he was sleeping in alleys. I mean, he was, he really was committed to it in back yeah. in the seventies. But he was saying plan B, don't, he, you know, he was not an advocate of plan B, but I mean, you and I are both the same age. I'm a little bit older and, you know, you and I both know you have to have a plan B, you know, you have, there has to be. Now, yeah. yeah. Especially over the last year. I mean, if you didn't have some sort of plan B, um, you're literally starving now. Literally. Yep. 
which is terrifying. I mean, that's so yeah, it's a, it is a very scary thing. I one of the things that I I'm very and I think we all are very well acquainted with our weaknesses as people. Mm-hmm. Did did you get acquainted with any of your strengths during during your illness during this last year? Um, did you did you find anything in you that you hadn't known before that was stronger than you thought or better than you thought or something that kind of revealed itself to you in a different way? Um, it has been uh, an incredible year as far as um, working on the dynamics of personal relationships. Um, like, you know, the the obvious one being uh, my marriage. I've been married for 20, coming up on 26 years now. Um, but that, you know, relationship with my wife when we have two kids has always been, um, you know, I've, I've, I've never really been in a situation where I'm playing like 300 shows a year or anything like that. I've, I've never been, but like touring, and being gone for a, two or three weeks at a time, uh, a few times throughout the year has always been part of it. Or, you know, doing like, um, we, we have always tended to break it up and like, we'll, we'll do a weekend like out, out, to, uh, out to the East Coast. And so there's always like a certain amount of, of traveling and or, or seasons of traveling that are gonna come up. So, um, I don't know. There, there. I think since since I got married, I've never had a year where I had to, you know, spend every day of an entire year just in the house with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has brought out kind of different layers and nuances of our relationship and some, some conflict that, um, you know, so far we've been able to work through these things and when, whenever you can do that and, and really have, have conflict that you can resolve with a, with a good, honest conversation, like you, you make the relationship a little stronger and you also discover things about yourself. And if you're able to be honest enough, you realize that certain, frictions, relational frictions that occur are because of flaws in your own personality. And, you know, that this is a situation that sort of forces you to uh, look at those things and address them. And like, do you want to just be stuck being that person? Or are you willing to grow and change a little bit? Um, So it's been a year of that. And, uh, you know, with some other, you know, within my family and, and also like, you know, with in my professional relationships, I've always, I've always kind of had like a, um, an approach to the, you know, whatever I'm doing professionally, other than being a working touring musician, where I've always kind of, um, I don't know, felt like I wasn't, I wasn't 100% like uh, committed 
you know, heart and soul to those, to those situations because my heart really belongs to um, the records that I'm making and the shows that I'm playing and the band that I'm in and those, those things. Um, and so this, but this last year has forced me to, um, to like settle into my, my, you know, day job in a way that, uh, you know, sort of work through some of those relational conflicts there as well and be like, well, I don't, I don't have an escape hatch here. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't check out of here and, and go on tour and come back and deal with this later or look for a different gig. You know, this, I'm grateful to have the gig that I've got and I have to treat it like it's my main gig in life because right now it is. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, these things are like a, a crucible that like forces you to like melt down who you are and forge it into something stronger if you're willing to do that. And that's a little bit of work. I mean, that is even just knowing that you don't have the escape hatch. You describing that makes me suddenly feel a kind of emotional claustrophobia that you certainly must have felt. I've um, always felt a, a claustrophobia in any in any gig that I've had that was that felt like a a, a regular job. Mm -hmm. You know, because there's something about the life of a transient touring musician that's very freeing and it's and it's beautiful and i'm for it in a lot of ways but i also recognize that it allows people to sort of not work on certain aspects of their own personality that they would have to address and change and modify if they were like planted somewhere which is why like you you just meet a lot of very interesting eccentric people on the road who who just are are, are characters in these wonderful lovable ways but um in their in their lives you know maybe they discover that they've had some some problems in long-term relationships that they haven't been able to overcome because they've never been forced to work through those things you know and like maybe i'm i'm kind of that way too and in in a way that this last year has has shown me like yeah still even though i'm you know coming up on 50 years old there are aspects of my own personality that i've just like sort of been sweeping under the rug for a long time and it's not too late to kind of work on yourself right and i think that a lot of times bands that are have been doing this for 25 years regularly you know like tour the country for a long period of time, then come back, um, where they don't have to do what you're talking about, the hard work of examining their personality. When you see them interviewed, they still, there seems to be something all, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but something is a little bit arrested um, because they haven't had to face, and, and you know, maybe they, maybe they are fortunate in that way and they don't have to do it, but I, you know, I, think, it's, I think it's helpful to do it, but they haven't had to face that that moment and i think that this has been a good time to for a lot of artists to kind of maybe emotionally reset and maybe take a look at who they are i mean 
in some ways, I, I've heard the theory that when you get your, whatever amount of fame you get, you become a little bit arrested at that particular age. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's probably true? I do think that. Yeah. yeah. Especially depending on how successful you get, you know, if you, if you become a person who's in the upper echelon of, of musical success, it becomes even more difficult for you because people become attracted to you for unhealthy reasons, you know? And also there will be more people in line if you, if you develop a uh, relational conflict with somebody and you push that person away, there will be somebody else in line to, to fill that spot. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're famous enough or wealthy enough or people are just attracted to successful, famous people, you know? So, um, and I only, uh, I only know that sort of because, uh, you know, the, the, the smoking popes experienced a little bit of that in the nineties. Um, when we, when we got caught up in all of that major label, you know, alt rock thing that was happening in the nineties. And, and we were, um, we were, you know, one of the bands that was in heavy rotation there for a while on, on uh, the Q101s and K-Rocks of the world. And so, um, you know, and that was, that was a, a, a unique time. And, um, you know, then we broke up for a while and when we came back, things were different and we just never, we never got back to that place. But I, I feel like our experience uh, you know, the, after that, we sort of became one of those working bands that we've been talking about where you're just sort of, you have your fan base and you're out there, you're, you're just, you're just kind of almost a blue collar <laughs> uh, aspect to what you're doing. But like, in the 90s, I felt like, you know, especially when we were, we were on a major label and, and the way that major labels were in the 90s, just like, um, they were just throwing money at these bands and to, 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 to go um, and to, to exist in, in this kind of like, it, it did feel like a different world that, that we were, that we were in back then. And like, you're, you're playing shows and instead of just like, instead of, uh, you know, you're out there with your, you have a merch person and you have a, maybe a guitar tech or a road manager or whatever but you're, you're actually, you have to lift some stuff yourself and, and you, you feel pretty connected to the people. Back then, it was like we would play shows and like our A&R guy there would, would be there. And uh, you know, the, 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 the guy from the label that was in charge of working college radio would come to the, to the show. And so there were always like, to be surrounded by like industry types, like puts you in a completely different frame of mind. And they have a way of like tr trying to treat you like a, like a different kind of person. They, they, they like, they're trying to convince you that they don't see you as a normal person. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to, they want you to think that they perceive you the way that they think you want to be perceived, which is like, a kind of god on earth and so to be surrounded by people like that it's very difficult to handle 
and it would stunt your emotional growth. If I feel like if we had stayed in that situation from that point on, I would be like totally unable to have a normal relationship at this point in my life. But, you know. Well, I mean, the reverence that you're talking about is, it feels to me so poisonous. I yeah. mean, you know, I mean, again, I, I can say that now, I probably wouldn't have understood that at 25, but um, it feels to me now I can see how poisonous and how misleading that could be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it feels like that could give you the wrong idea about who you are, because it's almost like they're reacting to you in a way that like you said that they, they think you want to be reacted to. So the layers of deceit are, and misunderstanding are just building and building and building. And it's like, you know, it's like two, two people talking to each other who have no idea who they are. Yep. <laughs> no idea really what it means to be a human being. You're living in some right. sort of cartoon version of what, what human existence really is. Yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds so unhealthy. I actually remember um, having a conversation, one conversation with Blake Schwarzenbach from, uh, from Jawbreaker about that back in the 90s when we, we did a tour together right when their album Dear You came out. And uh, there's a lot that you could say about what was happening with that band when that album came out because it was... They, they, they were being accused of selling out by, their, by almost their whole fan base. Um, yeah. Back in, the, in, in an era when that was a huge thing to be accused of selling out, you know? And now that even as, a, as something that people would worry about has kind of mostly evaporated. But, but um, I remember a conversation that I had with Blake um, one time where he, he brought up this concern that he had about now that they had signed to a major and they were, and he felt like he was, he was starting to live in that sort of alternate reality bubble where he was interacting with a lot of corporate types and industry people and dealing with people on that level enough to where like those were becoming the some of the primary relationships in his life and he was worried about this from a from a songwriting standpoint because he, he said like he, he he was he was concerned that he was gonna lose his ability to like understand human relationships the way that most people do because like nobody wants to hear a guy like you know writing lyrics about like being uh being like pissed at the president of his label or like you know a guy you know being furious about like how his band is being marketed <laughs> or or anything like that like those are just things that that um it would that it was going to ruin his art because people wouldn't be able to relate to him anymore and uh i i i don't know that conversation has stuck with me it was it's a pretty profound thing to be concerned about and i think it's a reason to at least 
to 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 be grateful for things that come along that um that in the moment might seem like they have hurt you by like being an obstacle in your commercial success but like they've actually had this very helpful effect on your life because they have forced you to be grounded like now you actually have to you, you, you might have to do something else for a living that forces you to interact with people on a real level. Yeah, and I think, what was the line? Uh, at the record company meeting on their hands, a dead star, right? That's from, oh, yeah. <laughs> from that Smith song, uh, which coincidentally was on their last album. And it's like, that is sort of like, you know, the reality of what you're, what you're saying is, and I think, I think Blake's concerns were legitimate concerns. I mean, I think that, um, I, I've heard about him that he's just the most sincere person and I could see him worrying about that in a way that some people may not have worried about um, such yeah. a thing. And it's, I think there's a certain nobility um, to being aware, at least being that, that aware at that young of an age that that would be a concern. And, um, you know, not a lot of people take that kind of stock that early on. It might occur to them later on. So yes. that was pretty forward thinking on his part. Um, yeah, and I think that his concerns about that were also, it revealed that, that his connection to art um, was built on a, 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 high, a high reverence for uh, the importance of the kind of transcendent nature of what can be communicated through art, like art for art's sake, like um, the, the, like like what's being communicated through the lyrics of the songs that you write has personal significance for, for people that are hearing it and it plays an important role in civilization. I think he, like he was thinking about these things and, and, and like had considered himself even as a guy in, uh, you know, a quote-unquote punk band, like he, as a as a lyricist, was participating in that conversation. He was creating things that were meaningful to other people, and and he knew it, and that 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 was sort of the the essence of what it meant to really be alive, and to and to and to and to uh, be able to sort of realize yourself as a person was to was to create that art not to not to achieve commercial success with that art but the making of the art itself was the important thing to him and he you you don't necessarily get that from listening to popular music i think he got that from probably like mostly what he was reading and and like you know thinking about um you know, like he, he would write songs where he was making reference to, to Jack Kerouac, for example. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, like, like where was Kerouac at as an artist? How did he view the importance of his art? And how was Kerouac as an artist affected by his success? And is there anything that we can learn in whatever our art form is, that we can learn from that so that we don't fall into the same traps? Butter. Day when she's around, I was on the tracks when the gate came down.
because Kerouac is a great example of that sort of, I'm a comet, <laughs> right? And I am a beautiful comet, and then I'm an absolute mess. Yep. And, and how that sort of intersection bet between um, the comet and the mess, there's this thing in that, in that middle space where he sort of like destroyed himself. Um, and it's a slow unraveling where you could you could start to see it in the art. You could start to see how he um, either he was believing what he was reading, or he was you know in a combination of drinking too much and um, yeah. and just literally literally losing control of the artistic car and just not being able to get it back on the road. So it's it's an interesting example that you bring that up. I mean, just, he just not a grounded man in in that regard. Uh, yes, yeah. really tragic. Yes, it is tragic. And, uh, you know, who knows? Like, maybe if, if Jawbreaker had had greater commercial success with Dear You and they had gone on to make a follow-up album that was even more successful than that, um, things would have gone very differently for them and Blake would have burned out and, you know, he wouldn't be with us anymore, you know? But, um, right. but their career trajectory went a different way and that they, he, uh, stopped being in Jawbreaker and, and did different things and he was doing some teaching and you know, apparently in, on a path that um, like we've been talking about, um, you know, caused him to, to be grounded in certain ways that um, 
have been important and and now we still have them and we have we have a new version of jawbreaker which is awesome but i'm thinking about that also in terms of like what i had said previously about i'm looking back on the 90s and 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 all the craziness that was surrounding the smoking popes when we got caught up in that whirlwind but the thing that remains from that is the art itself so like the the major label album that we came up with was was destination failure and i know like uh i don't know i that, that i was in a i was in a weird place when i wrote a lot of those songs uh i was i was listening to a lot of <laughs> jawbreaker i was doing a lot of reading uh i was you know i was thinking about art this is why that conversation i had with blake kind of um I still remember it. it. It really, it really resonated with me. I once, once we signed, I sort of more than ever started thinking about the music that we were making in terms of it being pieces of art that now were going to be around um, in the same way that uh, you know books or films or paintings or statues or whatever people were making it's it's going to be around you know years later decades later generations later and so you know you have to i don't know i i almost started thinking about that stuff so much that uh it becomes difficult it, it can become a weight that you're that you're carrying along with your art that makes it hard <laughs> that makes it hard to do like the important thing i think is just to be a person who's living a life and then using this art form to kind of express uh observations about that thoughts and feelings about it um some of which is observed and expressed intuitively through your art, but um, I don't know. Once it gets once it gets caught up in, uh, you know, like if 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 things had gone, you know, better for the Smoking Popes commercially, um, it probably wouldn't have been good for us. Mm. I don't know. Maybe there's there's something in that about like how every Every, everything in life that comes at you that you think is bad um, turns out to be good if, <laughs> you know, because it, uh, I don't know, maybe that's not true of everything, but it can be. It can be. Like any person in life who is like, if things go too smoothly for a person and too well, like they end up being a person that nobody likes anymore. <laughs> yeah, because you, you have to have the contrast of, right, you, you can't know joy unless you've known sadness, right? Yeah. I mean, otherwise, everything is just sort of like the same. Um, when, I, when I meet someone and they go, I don't know, I'm just happy all the time. I'm like, ugh, that makes me worried for you. <laughs> you shouldn't be happy all the time. I mean, I'm glad to hear that, but I don't, I don't trust that. I want, you know, there has to be gradation, and I think there has to be again, contrast to make you appreciate 
I mean, it comes, it just comes back to, I once was lost and now I'm found. You have to be lost to know that you're found. Right? <laughs> Isn't that the whole idea? Oh, you know? It totally is, which is, it's interesting that you would reference that song and the, the idea that is encapsulated in that song, which is kind of a, the Christian gospel, which is this two part message, which is like, the bad news is, you know, uh, that your, your, your sin has separated you from God, and then you're condemned for that. But the good news is, is that he has provided a way out of that through Jesus, and you can have eternal life because of that. But like, if, you, if everybody was just born, and um, it was just like, guess what? Everybody has eternal life automatically and your 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 soul is saved upon birth like everybody be like oh that's nice you know but there's something about having been lost and then and then being found and redeemed um that is that has a beauty to it that whether it's uh you know true in a spiritual sense in in Christian art or just in any in any piece of work that has a narrative to it there's some sense of redemption to it because that's the human condition I think we all kind of like pick up on the fact that there's a lostness that has to be addressed in us that never completely goes away even as a Christian person myself like who um you know for like tw 20 some years now I have been a person who like um, embraced a faith that kind of solved this basic existential problem of like, what is going to happen to me after I die? Like, I, I know that that is that it ultimately going to end well for me. Like, okay, great. That does not immediately solve all of my existential problems though. Right. I still have to live this life and contend with myself and the people around me. And still I'm like figuring out problems and, and all of that. Otherwise I wouldn't be making art. Every, every song would just be, you know, just a, 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 a commercial. Right. Right. With, with no, with no turns, it would just be flatland. And yeah. I think that like, why I love Amazing Grace so much is for all the things you said and also the idea that it presents that, hey, look, there was a struggle <laughs> and the struggle was worth it. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the whole thing. I mean, I think in, in art, um, you're, you're still writing about the struggle. No, I mean, nobody wants to hear a song about you scoring the winning touchdown either. I mean, that's, that's completely, right? That would be horrible. Um, I don't care who sings it. I don't care if Glenn Danzig sings it. I don't want to hear about the winning touchdown. You want to hear about, because the struggle to me is also the most interesting thing because it leads you to this place. And without that, the path there, I mean, like, you know, like getting up the mountain and then looking down and going, the view is beautiful. You earned that moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's sort of like, that's why I think struggle is important to go through. And I think even in art, I've always loved your writing because it seems so economical to me. Like it seems like you, um, you've been able to get to the heart of the matter so well in your body of work. And I've I really, as a writer, I really admire that because it makes the stuff so universal. 
but you're still you're still grappling and and it's and i and i think you're saying now even at 48 the grapple continues right yes yes it does yes it does and i grapple with that like uh this kind of sense of identity because uh i'm a i'm a worship pastor at my church which is that's my day job as so to speak you know that is the thing that um pays the pays the bills but it's weird to put it in those terms because um being a worship pastor is a is a job that has more of a sense of calling to it like if it's just a job to you that's a problem because that you're you're working in a church you're you're ministering to people and part of my job a big part of my job is to 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 get up on the platform at church on a Sunday and, and lead people through a time of music that is intended to be an interaction between them and God, where they are expressing things through the music that they're singing. They're expressing their own hearts to God, and uh, you know if 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 that goes well, that there's a sense that God has met with them in their spirit, um, and it's this you know, beautifully transcendent thing. And, and to, to do that and to facilitate that as a pastor, um, like you have to believe in it, which I do. And it's something that I would, um, that I would volunteer to do if I wasn't getting paid for it. I'd still would like go to church on Sunday and just, hey, I'll, I'll lead worship or play on the worship team, you know, for free when I'm in town, you know, yeah. just because I believe in it. But to do it as a as a profession, it has been a, a, a strange and interesting source of tension for me um, to to sort of have this conflict between like doing that for a living. And because, yes, I do love to do it, but I still feel in many ways like my true musical identity is more in making albums and playing shows uh, in ways that aren't connected to the church. And so, um, I don't know. Like, the, I mean, that even has been part of the last year is that like, I've always had church jobs that kind of um, have, afford me a certain flexibility to do a certain amount of touring. Um, but I didn't do any touring in 2020. I have just been like doing the church job and it's, I, I'm the church that I'm at now. It's like a great church. This is, and it's probably the best fit for, for me, personality and giftedness-wise, um, to be at. It's a really good situation. I'm really grateful to be there um, of all the churches that I've worked at in my life. And so, but like, I still find myself sort of wrestling through like, well, like, no, what am I? Am I, am I, am I a worship pastor who like sort of has fun on the side with my little band stuff or like, Am I an artist who who makes albums, and this is something that I do for a living to to fund that, or 
or can the two things be uh, woven together? I don't know. There always feels like there's a conflict. Mostly, yeah. mostly probably of my own making. <laughs> yeah, right. And that comes down to, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking of it. It's sort of like, what does your ego need to know? What does your ego need to hear? Because to me, the way you're describing the job of the church is the same way that an artist might describe their, the way they're doing their art, the way you talk about um, how important it is to make music for you. Um, they sound like they're, the, the common denominator is it, the calling. Yeah. Right? Yep. And so the, the other, then I guess the other stuff almost doesn't even matter if you think about it. It's true. It's amazing, though, that as artists, we have something that we have identified in our lives that we feel called to at all. Um, I mean, I know, I know people who just don't, don't know what that is. They, they have a job that they've had for a long time that pays the bills, but they, they don't feel connected to it as a calling. They don't love it. They don't know what, <laughs> they don't know what the, if, they, if they had to say what their calling was in life, then it's like, I don't know. You know, like as an artist, you, you have, it's sort of a blessing and a curse because you, you, you have something that is like, this is what I am meant to do. But like the thing that you're meant to do is like a very unstable thing to do that doesn't provide you much security and, uh, um, it is fraught with um, conflict and obstacles and difficulties that, you know, I wish that what I, what I was called to do was to, uh, to be an orthodontist. <laughs> well, my wife, and that, that, that was my passion and that was my heart. Like it would yeah. make life a lot easier. <laughs> I know what you mean, but I, the way I look at you and I think you're a lucky man because you have two callings, you know? I mean, you, you, there's two, and that's like two more than some people even get. Oh, I, I guess, I guess there's something to that, or is it one calling with like, kind of a split, uh, with two formats or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. E I mean, either way, it feels lucky because I think that some people, some a lot of orthodontists will tell you like, they're like, yeah, I had this really big house and I make this much money a year, but like. I don't love what I do. <laughs> you know, I'm sure some do. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that sometimes that's why I love hearing stories about people who guy sold insurance and at 75, he finally went and tried out to be in the local theater. And he found out that, you know, his calling was to be an actor. And he gets that for a couple of years before his, his life is over. And, yeah. um, and that's the whole thing is to sort of find, to find that thing and um, to know that thing, yeah. I think it's a, it's marvelous. It is marvelous. I actually wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think about that. I was just just thinking about this the other day because the Super Bowl was on, and I was thinking about kind of the shelf life of uh, athletes as far as doing doing the thing that because um, I, I imagine you know those guys for the most part would feel like from a young age, that's just what they, 
loved to do and felt like a, a sort of a calling and a your destiny to be a football player. And that was only confirmed by the fact that you succeeded to the point where you were an NFL football player. Yeah. Like really you only get to do it for a fairly short amount of time. You know, if you hit 40 and you're still doing it, you're considered like a miracle of modern science to still be playing the game at that age. You yeah. know? Yeah. So like, if what, you know, I think like, what if that was the case on, uh, on making music, you know, if I had hit as a person who's 48 years old, like if I was just, just past it, like I was, I was, I had to retire. No one who is 50 years old is still doing this. Like if that were the case, oh, what would I do? Because I've got, you know, with with modern medical science, I could potentially have decades left of life. <laughs> right. And if I can't if I can't like write songs and record albums and, and perform music in front of people, like what would I do? The thought of not being able to do that, uh I would actually lose my mind or have some sort of emotional meltdown i would not be able to function it serves a necessary function in my life so i don't know it's weird it's like um it's a blessing to to know what your calling is but it also it's because you've you have been given this need to do something where I don't know if you didn't have that need to do it, like, I don't know, maybe you'd be happier. Then I could just be an orthodontist and I'd be like, ah, I'm good with that because I don't have some, like something in my soul that is burning like a white hot coal that tells me that there's something out there that I, some specific thing that I have to be doing. You know, then I could just like find a job that was like that paid well. And then I could just sort of, enjoy my relationships and go through life and eat a sandwich and <laughs> well i think that there what you're saying is really interesting because there are some people that don't care that there's not a burning passion that is being filled um yeah. they and that's and that's that's and that's okay um one of my students said to me you know, she rides horses and she said, I'm, I've been an equestrian for 10 years and, and I'm, I'm aging out. I'm going to be graduating from college and I, you know, it's just not sustainable. I'm, I'm done. And she said, do you think there's going to be a void in my life? Because I've done this every day since I was 10. And I thought, sure, <laughs> of course there is, especially if you love it. Um, but there are people who don't under, don't know that you're supposed to be passionate about. So they don't have that thing and they're okay with it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, the, those I mean, that, that person if they if they come to the end of that and they can just stop working with horses and they're oh they kind of miss it but they're okay like i i would envy that really you know right. like don't i honestly wouldn't look down on anyone for not having this burning sense of calling in their in their life it's like it's a pretty significant inconvenience to have a burning sense of calling. <laughs> and I know a lot of musicians out there who just like, you know, even like during normal times, they're just out there 
work in it and they're just like you know they haven't they're if they're out on tour they haven't been home in eight weeks and um you know they're just they're 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 spending most of their time in these dingy little uh band rooms and like they it's just like they 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 have to do that they're 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 propelled and they've got no insurance and no prospects it's not looking good their future but um they have to do that i just know a bunch of people like that it's like this is what keeps you out there it's like like what else are you gonna do yeah you can't do anything else you kidding? I'd go crazy doing anything else. Yeah, like it's story it reminds me, I don't know, I feel like this I'm I'm just like rambling. No, this. please. Do, do most people ramble this much on your in your podcast? I I, try, I, I like them too. Yeah, this this is <laughs> <laughs> It just reminds me of that story that Jerry Seinfeld told in that documentary called Comedian. I was just it? thinking about that story. Yeah. Yeah, about the band. I can't remember whose band it was, but was it Duke Ellington? Somebody like that, Duke Ellington, um, a jazz band, and they're slugging through the rain, and they're they're like muddy because their car broke down or whatever, and they're covered in in mud. They're soaking wet because it's raining, and they're hauling their horns and stuff. And they look into the window of a house, and they see that like idyllic married couple there with the with the fire burning in the fireplace, and they're just kissing each other and and then they they look at each other and say can you imagine living like that <laughs> it was like there's something in that story that that speaks to like every artist who feels like this is what i must do with my life because <laughs> it's, it's gonna suck yeah you know, a, lot of, a lot of your life is gonna suck and it's gonna be really hard but it's the perfect metaphor for being an artist. I mean, it's not a comfortable life, but your comfort is in that discomfort is not even, doesn't even um, present itself as discomfort because it's, it's the sweet spot. That's where you, that's where you live. Yep. Um, and the other stuff doesn't make any sense. You know, to be an orthodontist doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, but I, I, man, I've just, I've admired your work for years and I, and I'm so grateful. I've always wanted to chat with you and I'm grateful that you, that you were able to talk to me and, and willing to uh, go deep. Oh, sure, man. I'm glad to do it. I mean, uh, I'm doing some interviews these days because of the, of the new project, the new record I've got coming out. So I know that like, uh, our conversation has been so like uh, organically uh, enjoyable that um, we haven't even mentioned it yet, and probably <laughs> probably talk for two more hours without ever getting around to it. But well, speaking of that album, Josh, I got to tell you, it is some powerful work. It's really affecting, really moving, and incredibly rousing. And um, I just think you've never sounded better, man. It's just it's remarkable. I thank you. I, I deeply appreciate you saying that. Um, I'm really, this project in particular is just very like dear to me. It really, it really has meant a lot to me to do this. Um, and you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm proud of all the things that the Popes have done and other projects and 
different bands I've played on and all the, all the albums and, and everything. But like, I don't know, right now to be doing this project, I do feel like it's sort of like the culmination of, of, of a lot of things. I almost feel like the, the trajectory of the smoking popes, um, has has led to a project like this i feel like underneath it all like this is something that i've wanted to do for a long time and even um i feel like some of the things that the way that we arranged the songs i kind of pushed myself vocally on a couple of the songs in ways that i was nervous about um, like just some of the, a, a couple of the notes, the sustained notes that I hit in those songs is like, I, I don't know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have set the song at, at the top of my range, uh, maybe if, if, if we were making a Pope, Pope song or mm -hmm. like, but if you're going to do, if, if you're going to do like, you know, the song, what kind of fool am I? Um, and you listen to the way that Sammy Davis Jr. did that song, like he does that thing at the end of the song where he, it builds up and he, he strips away all the other instrumentation. And there's a moment where just his voice sings, I am, you know, <laughs> and he just hits that note and he's like, there's a kind of a, a courage, not that, you know, not the courage in the sense that uh, like a firefighter is courageous, but there's a certain amount of artistic courage in saying like, I'm gonna go for that note and I'm not gonna have any backup at that moment. I was nervous about doing that. And so there was like, uh, I was, it was exciting to me to, to be nervous about moments in this project. And the fact that we were gonna be recording it in front of basically a live viewing audience so yeah. that if I messed up that note, however many people were watching, we're gonna see it like go down in flames. And like, I don't know, there was an exhilaration to it, to doing it that way that I was deeply grateful for. And, and I, I loved and sort of relished every minute of doing it that way. And I'm so, it makes me really proud of this project and who knows, there'll come a day where I, I cannot perform that song in that key anymore. <laughs> and that day might come soon, but at least for that moment, I could do it, man. Yeah, you got, you got that moment. Well, I mean, I think it's just, it's, it, you have never, to me, as I said, never sounded better. You sound, your voice sounds so powerful and so strong and so um, assured. I've been carrying the album with me um, for the last couple of days. And I just, I love it, man. It's, it's to me, it's like, it's exactly what I needed <laughs> to start the year off. Um, but wow. congratulations. It's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful album. Thank you, man. Uh, yeah. It's awesome for me to hear you say that. Thank you. immensely enjoyable uh josh caterer terrific guy and uh i i really love that conversation 
I also love his album, in case I haven't made that abundantly clear, and I know you're going to as well. Smokin'Popesmusic.com is where you need to go to find out how to order that album, and uh, trust me, it'll be a brilliant addition to your digital music collection. Or maybe you're one of those people that's tactile, and you prefer a hard copy that exists in the physical space, so you can put it on your shelf, and people can walk in and know that you're cool by the selection of CDs that you have displayed. Remember those days? Someone would invite you over, and while they were in the kitchen or getting ready, you know, you don't know them very well, but you figure like, all right, I have a couple of minutes. I'm going to go through their CDs and judge them. That's, that's how we did it back then. That was like, how's this night going to go? Well, go through the CDs before they come back in the room and you'll know. There was always a moment, too, where someone would throw you a curveball. It'd be like, all right, Whitney Houston unplugged. All right, uh, Matchbox 20. Okay. All right, Janet Jackson, Madonna, Husker Du. What the hell? <laughs> that would happen sometimes. That's the old curveball. And then you thought the night was going to go one way, and now you have no idea what's going to happen. Anything could happen when you go from Janet Jackson to Husker Du. Uh, AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. I do have a new book, which will be out in September. I'll be talking about that incessantly from uh, May 1st on. Get ready uh, for me to not be shutting up about my new novel. You can follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Ember's Podcast. Don't be a stranger on these social media mediums. Join the fun. I'm a good follow. Uh, you can also email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, you know, leave us a rating, maybe a nice comment or two. Oh yeah, we read them. Bombshellradio.com is where you need to go to find out what makes us tick. I think that's everything. Let's close the show with a longer listen to Josh Caterer's Need You Around. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. If I could see you.